Hello, and welcome to episode 28 of Tech Swamp. We have our hosts and friendly membership team here today. Hey, Brad. Why, hello there. Hello, Caitlin. What's up? You know, just membership chilling in membership. my house. Membership chilling at home. <laughs> um, and of course, this is Alex. So today we're sitting down with Senior Global Policy Counsel Brian Scarpelli to talk about our Connected Health Initiative and the work being done around telemedicine during the COVID-19 pandemic. So we'll be talking The Hill, FDA, and more. But first, we're going to hit tech history and run through some DC headlines. April 23rd, 2005, 15 years ago this month, the first YouTube video was uploaded. The video titled Me at the Zoo was uploaded by YouTube co-founder Jod Kareem. It was 18 seconds long, has over 90 million views, and shows Jod standing in front of an elephant enclosure at the San Diego Zoo. In the video, Jod says, and I quote, <clears throat> The cool thing about these guys is that they have really, really, really um, long trunks, and that's cool. And that's pretty much all I have to say, end quote. While the video sounds awkward and dry, to say the least, Business Insider named it the most important YouTube video of all time, stating that the first YouTube video is, quote, representative of YouTube. It doesn't need to be this fancy production. It can be approachable. The first YouTube video is something anyone could create on their own, end quote. Um, another fun fact is that Lazy Sunday by The Lonely Island slash SNL uh, was one of the first viral YouTube videos ever, uh, which came out in December of 2005. So obviously a little bit later, it took YouTube a little while. Anyway, that's all for Tech History. That sound means it's time for What's Brewing in DC. Caitlin and Brad, what are some of the top tech headlines? After an extended recess created to help flatten the curve in the nation's capital, the Senate will return to DC and begin legislating. Now this is after the House announced a similar plan, but then reversed course. The return to Washington, an effort led by Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, will likely lead to another round of COVID-19-related funding, and what many are calling Phase 4. However, Majority Leader McConnell said that his chamber's return to the Capitol is to, quote, honor our constitutional duty, and not to necessarily pass more funding for states. In fact, McConnell went on to say that he opposed federal aid to states and cities facing financial crisis preferring what he calls the, quote, bankruptcy route, in which cash-strapped states file for bankruptcy, despite the fact that states don't actually have the legal authority to do so. Now, we'll be sure to keep you posted on Congress's activity in the next episode of Tech Swamp. But in the meantime, if you're still kind of confused about the recent funding for small businesses passed in the last stimulus package, check out our webinar led by our Senior Director for Public Policy, Graham Dufault. The link will be in the show notes. Some great news out of the FCC in terms of spectrum. Last week, the FCC adopted rules that will make 1200 megahertz of spectrum in the 6 gigahertz band available for unlicensed use. These new rules were usher in Wi-Fi 6, the next generation of Wi-Fi, and play a major role in the growth of the Internet of Things. Wi-Fi 6 will be over two and a half times faster than the current standard and will offer better performance for American consumers, clearing the way for more innovation and growth in the app economy. Opening the 6 GHz band for unlicensed use will also increase the amount of spectrum available for Wi-Fi by nearly a factor of 5 and will definitely help improve rural connectivity as well. And some more news out of the FCC relating to their work around COVID-19. 
in the last round of funding from Congress, the FCC was able to launch the $200 million COVID telehealth program aimed to help healthcare workers provide connected care services to patients at their homes or mobile locations. The program will provide immediate support to eligible healthcare providers responding to the COVID-19 pandemic by fully funding their telecommunication services, information services, and devices necessary to provide critical connected care services until the program's funds have been expanded or the COVID-19 pandemic has ended. For more information on this program, including how to apply, head to our show notes. Rounding out what's brewing with the primary election update. Since our last podcast, Senator Bernie Sanders suspended his presidential campaign, leaving the nomination to former Vice President Joe Biden. Moving forward and in normal times, we could expect the Democratic convention to take place in July in Milwaukee, but the DNC postponed its presidential convention due to COVID-19. As of early April, the DNC moved the convention from mid-July to mid-August but it's possible it will need to be moved again or taken completely virtual. We'll be sure to keep you posted in future episodes of TechSwamp. And that's all for What's Brewing. All right, so as we mentioned earlier, today we're joined by our Senior senior Global Policy Council, Brian Scarpelli, to talk about our Connected Health Initiative and the work being done around telemedicine uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic. So, Brian, thank you so much for joining us on TechSwamp. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, so before we dive into the actual work that, that the Connected Health Initiative, um, aka CHI, um, has been doing sort of around de- telemedicine and, and, and digital tools, um, can you kind of give a little bit of background and just like a refresher on who CHI is, um, just kind of setting the scene uh, for the rest of our conversation? Absolutely. So the, the Connected Health Initiative is a... Uh, the result of a decision by ACT to answer the call (laughs) that was brought forward to us by a range of of ACT members who are in the digital healthcare space. And and really what that call was for was for ACT to have some dedicated, some focus on some of the very um, unique challenges and opportunities that face companies trying to grow and create jobs in the digital healthcare space. So about five or six years ago was um, when you know, when, when ACT decided to, to really give, you know, give it a name and give it a focus and, 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 and put some more energy into it based on the prompting of all, of all of our members. And since then, we've had a whole bunch of things that we've run with. But uh, that, that's the background on, on it. I won't ramble on. don't mean to ramble on too much there. <laughs> no, yeah. I, I think, um, and I think related to the rest of our conversation, a big part of our goal is to sort of make sure that, um, you know, there are sort of things that line up to allow for both patients and caregivers to harness technology to improve patient engagement overall, um, and also just kind of like improve um, and and help sort of the way that medicine is, is delivered today. Um and so with that in mind, you know, with the outbreak of COVID-19, we've seen a lot of these services really being used in a way that they hadn't been for, uh, used before. And I think we're also seeing sort of an uptick in the utilization of telehealth, um, both for patients and, you know, for providers, given that we can't kind of do face-to-face uh, 
visits in the way that, you know, we could before. Um, and so I know that CHI has been working on a lot of the roadblocks that have sort of existed traditionally and are now sort of being waived um, for the purpose of the pandemic. But can you talk a little bit more about what those are and what CHI specifically has been doing around those barriers? We have, in some cases, laws and regulations that are over a quarter of a, of a century old. They're over 25 years old. And um, they go back to the early 90s, some of them. So, so our main goal here is thinking short term. How can we unlock the technologies that exist today to enable uh, flattening the curve across any aspect? So there's, there's for the reimbursement perspective, there's, there needs to be expanded payment for the use of digital health technologies where there wasn't before if you want to put more physical distance between the caregivers and the patients. That's a no-brainer. I think everybody gets that, including the agency, and they have done that, right? But they're all the devil's always in the details, right? So we're always, we've been working with them um, on where, how exactly to affect that priority, and we've had a great number of breakthroughs there. Privacy and security, though, I mean, you know, the HIPAA laws, as, as old as they, the, the statute and the regulations, as old as they are, have um, have become uh, have become a barrier to 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 putting tech in the in the hands of clinicians and patients and enabling them to fully leverage very basic capabilities that have existed for a long time that would make healthcare more efficient. Um, and you still, run, I personally run into um, physician physicians who insist on using fax machines because of HIPAA, quote unquote, some other misconceptions. I mean, it's in, it's it's endemic. Um, and uh, and and so, you know, getting, for example, the Health and Human Services Department's Office of the Inspector General, the enforcement part of it, the, the, the part that enforces HIPAA, would, would go and enforce and make it sue you, basically, for violating HIPAA, to put forward some guidance saying that for folks who utilize certain technologies, such as live voice video apps, FaceTime, Zoom, whatever, um, if they act in good faith, to align to to align their practices with HIPAA, um, then there won't be an enforcement action against them if they happen to, you know, if they happen to technically violate it during the public health emergency. So that's another example. I mean, uh, with 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 data flows, they pause the enforcement of some of these rules, and I might have a different opinion about about whether they should have done that or not. But their their goal was to to lower barriers. Um, they've even taken steps at the FDA at at the CHI's prompting to enable eased access to predictive algorithms, in other words, AI, um, in, the, in, in analyzing um, uh, images of lungs. And there's new, some new studies demonstrating that AI tools can, can easily dem, um, uh, diagnose um, uh, COVID symptoms in a lung image and differentiate them from regular pneumonia, et cetera. You know, so why aren't we using those tools? That sort of thing, right? And, right. and they're hearing us there. We've got a great many uh, things that we've been able to attain. All of these are allowances that, with the with one exception, which I won't even. It's <laughs> with one exception, <laughs> we've gotten a ton <laughs> of allowances that will uh, be in place for the duration of the public health emergency. And that needs to be de declared and then redeclared every 90 days by the Secretary of the Health and Human Services Department. And they just declared another emergency for another 90 days as of about four or five days ago. So, um, you know, we have a, I, I should mention, we've 
from the from day one, before we had any of these allowances, we've been building a resource document that we just call the CHI's COVID-19 and digital health resource, you know, and maybe we need a snappier acronym there for it. But the, <laughs> the, the, the purpose of the document is to capture all of the things for the purposes of this public health emergency that we have. And there's pages of those at this, but we update this thing daily because there's that many changes to track uh, across different federal agencies. Um, legitimately, there's at least one update that we make per day. So we're on like version like 27 right now of this thing. Right. Um, and uh, uh, not, but not only are we capturing what we have, but we're capturing and keeping track of what we still need. And so that's kind of as a little bit of a tangent. That's a call for input to anybody listening to this right now, or <laughs> or who might hear about what I, what we're talking about here, or who's interested. Um, we would love to hear your input about not only what we have now and. But but also what we still need, because there are immense opportunities to address it. And we're working on those across Congress and and the federal and the federal agencies. Hey, guys, it's Caitlin. I just want to jump in here and ask. So like of the changes that CHI has helped create on the federal level, you know, from, you know, the two hundred million dollar covid telehealth program at the FCC all the way to the barriers around telemedicine for Medicare and Medicaid recipients being removed. What do you think, Brian, is going to be the most impactful change long-term? The allowances being made during the public health emergency, I think are begging a national debate. And I think they, they, they are prompting that debate. That debate is occurring already and definitely will occur. Probably, most pointedly after the public health emergency is declared over, whenever that is, and I hope it's soon, but um, is, um, you know, why it's, I think it's a fair question to ask. Why did the agencies need to push to the side, you know, countless laws and regulations, some, again, some of which are, are, are 20 or 25 years old, um, in order to enable the basic use of technology in addressing this public health emergency. Right. And it really does beg the question as to whether these, especially older laws and regulations, even serve a public good any longer. I'm sure when they were drafted, most definitely they were the intention of Congress when they wrote a law and the agencies when they made a regulation pursuant to that law were well-intentioned, right? They, this is in the, it was, I'm sure they thought very hard about why the requirements that they put in place were in the public good. Definitely, uh, every single one of them had that underlying intent. But it's 2020, and that was in 1993. So are those laws still serving a public interest? And I think that's a really interesting question that, that we'll be debating for some time because there's kind of a, it's, it's a practical versus a theoretical question in some ways. And mm -hmm. I mean, not to put too fine a point on the practical aspect of it, but can you imagine um, after unlocking the ability of a Medicare beneficiary, and by the way, people over 65 years old all vote, um, <laughs> to um, enabling a Medicare beneficiary in Wyoming who previously had to drive two hours one way to a doctor's appointment that might be 15 or 20 minutes right. for some serious illness, chronic condition that they're suffering from? And that they're able to to accomplish that 
that doctor's visit via a smartphone when they never were able to before, that can you imagine that when the public health emergency is declared over, that Congress and the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services are going to go to that beneficiary in Wyoming and go snatch the smartphone out of their hand and say, okay, public health emergency is over. You need to go back to doing that two-hour drive each way. That's just not... That's just not, I mean, the law is the law and all that. Set all that aside. That's just impractical, right? right? <laughs> no, and I so, think, yeah. Yeah, that's such a great point, too. Um, and I think it just sort of shows all of the work that CHI has been doing on this, both, um, you know, around the pandemic specifically, but also sort of in the past and sort of finding ways to waive these existing restrictions so that people can have access to these things. And I think your point is 100% true, which is that moving forward, now that we have sort of seen what medicine could be like with these restrictions waived, you know, with people being able to access telemedicine, um, with there not being limitations to um, where they are located geographically, but also what kind of technology they're using um, and sort of how they have first met with their provider. You know, I think that these are all really interesting things that right now we're able to sort of implement and see how they um, are actually going to both improve um, mm -hmm. you know, that how people are engaging with their own health, but also sort of like the quality of healthcare that we're able to provide. Um, and then, you know, with also sort of um, HHS being able to recognize that right now we just have to focus on care um, and we'll figure out privacy as we continue to move forward. Um, you know, I think that that's um, a really interesting uh, win. And I and I also think that the work that the FDA is trying to do to also sort of support um, this uptick in use in these digital services is really great. Um, and, you know, CHI has just been so busy writing letters and taking meetings uh, virtually, of course. Um, um, and also getting these, um, you know, as you mentioned before, consensus uh, advocacy streams where we have something like 30 to 50 companies signing these letters that we're sending mm -hmm. in support of the removal of some of these barriers. You know, I think mm -hmm. it's been really interesting and exciting to sort of get to watch and be a part of. Um, and so it's so great to be able to sort of talk about all of these wins and all of this work that we've been doing sort of around um, you know, both the immediacy of addressing the needs of, during this pandemic, but also sort of what that's going to lead to for the future. Um, right. And, you know, can, can I add something to that, too? It's, it's, some, it's really it's something really interesting that, that you're saying, too. Frankly, it's a crowded field when you look at the advocacy game in, in healthcare, first of all, and right. <laughs> specifically in digital healthcare. And there's a bunch of different groups that call themselves coalitions and call themselves associations, which are more or less um, fronts, you know, <laughs> for specific interests, usually big business interests. You know? Right, like they I focus on, right. Yeah. What makes the CHI different is that steering committee and, and us being true to that consensus uh, across those different those different communities. And, you know, while there's there's definitely a bunch of regulations that are that are old and probably if not need, if if they don't need to be swept away they probably need to be modified you know mm -hmm. um at the same time there's new areas namely the role of artificial intelligence in healthcare where some new regulation will will be required you know so right. it's 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 it, it's like a combination of of arguing for the repeal of some regulation that exists but also right. the creation of some new regulation which i think sets us apart from a number of groups, particularly ones that are just very industry centric, who are just yeah. saying repeal every, every, every regulation we you know, and that sort of thing. So it, 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 you know, it's, it's, I guess I'm talking at a super general level, but it, it, I, 
just being a part of it is fun. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and it is quite fascinating, too, to see where, where, where this consensus takes us, you know? Absolutely. Um, well, Brian, thank you so much for joining us. Um, it's so great to hear about these accomplishments that you and the Connected Health Initiative, Initiative have really been able to um, to work on and, and to get through during this time. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much uh, for sharing. I want to reiterate, um, we will be posting um, the CHI COVID website um, in our show notes. So you guys can go, you can check out all of the um, both resources that CHI has created, but also um, see, you know, what we have secured in terms of um, sort of moving uh, the dial forward on the uptick of digital services, but also um, what we still need. Um, and you can also find out ways to get involved. Um, so please don't hesitate uh, to check that out. And um, and thank you again for Brian <laughs> for joining us. Pleasure to talk to you about it. And, um, you know, lots more to come. All right, now it's time for our random identifier. Brad, what do you have for us? All right, I know my two co-hosts are not very big into sport ball, uh, <laughs> but in the lack of live sports happening right now, ESPN has granted the sports community a gift by releasing um, a Michael Jordan documentary. It is 10 parts in total, only four thus far. Um, and it is absolutely phenomenal. Um, never been a big Bulls fan. Um, actually, coming from Michigan, a big Pistons fan, so they were kind of rivals back then. Uh, but just getting this in-depth of a look at uh, someone who was that phenomenal at the sport that they played um, is just such a great treat uh, when there's really nothing live to watch in that uh, category. Have you watched all the episodes? There's only four out thus far. Um, six more on the way. I have uh, dragged my girlfriend into watching it with me as well, which I'm sure she is thrilled about. So I heard on t Twitter, the Twitter people are tweeting, that there is a lot of uh, really explicit drug use that was happening on that team. Absolutely. A lot of alcohol, a lot of gambling almost all the time. Um, but they didn't. They don't dive too much into that section of it. It's uh, it's just kind of something that's known, at least thus far. Okay. But one of the last episodes, uh, Dennis Rodman, um, he he was granted a mid-season vacation to Vegas, and they he said he'd be gone for 48 hours, and it had been days and days and days. And Michael Jordan actually went to Las Vegas to go get him, oh like busted gosh. in the hotel room and brought him back to the team. <laughs> uh, so that's pretty funny. That is wild. Um, when he played for the Wizards, I was pretty young, um, but my dad would take me to a bunch of games. Um, and uh, like a lawyer for the team uh, all frequented this like neighborhood restaurant that we went to a lot called Cashin's Eat Place. And um, for, I don't remember how old I was. I think it was like my 10th birthday maybe. Um, anyway, the, the guy who was a lawyer for the team got Michael Jordan to sign... Um, like a picture for me um and I didn't really I mean like I knew that he was a real person but I kind of always thought of him as like Michael Jordan in Space Jam mm -hmm. um and so it was like a really confusing thing for me to sort of see him outside of like the Looney Tunes context I still have that signed photo somewhere too it's on my That's mom's legit. House, I think yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. wow yeah. it's a fun fact <laughs> 
we're full of fun facts today. Full of fun facts today. Um, it's how I pass the time during quarantine. Caitlin, <laughs> um, <laughs> what about you? What do you have for us? Well, I have a really fun fact <laughs> about a grocery yes. store. <laughs> yes. It's where, um, that's, the, that's my, like, outing every two weeks. Yeah. So I get to see the world. It's our time to be social <laughs> yeah. and really just actually exist around other people while maintaining six feet. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> I am a big fan of Trader Joe's. Um, and Trader Joe's is, you know, known for their, like, specialty products that they create. A lot of them are seasonal and they become fan favorites and blah, blah, blah. Um, so I do follow more than one account for Trader Joe's on Instagram and I'm going to own that right now. Um, (laughs) but I saw recently, like just before recording the podcast that Trader Joe's has come out with a pickle hummus Mm. and I'm intrigued. I'm going to get some pretzel thins. I think the everything bagel pretzel thins when I go to Trader Joe's tomorrow and get this freaking pickle hummus. Oh my gosh. (laughs) My mouth is watering. I'm with you. No, mine literally is. <laughs> I'm like, I am, I'm, I'm intrigued. I don't know that I'm all in. I would want to sort fair. of like, I, would I don't, I wouldn't expect, I wouldn't expect when you hear about this item, I would not expect everyone to be like, hell yeah, I'm all in. Like, I think that it is sensible to approach with caution. Cause like the thing is, I really like pickles mm-hmm. of all sorts and yeah. I really like hummus. Mm-hmm. And I don't mind a pickle dip, and I don't mind an experimental hummus. But, like, mm-hmm. for some reason, in my mind, I just, like, can't meld pickle flavor and hummus flavor together. And that's what's stopping me, I think. Right. Yeah. Right. No, I get that. Like, I I like, you know, pizza, and I like clementines, but right. I wouldn't combine them together. Right. To be fair, wildly different. Yeah. <laughs> what what about all those weird desserts where you can put bacon in it? I'm not on board with that either. I'm not really a dessert person, but if I did eat a dessert, I would add bacon to it because it would add a savory flavor that, like, I need. Yeah. Or, like, have you ever had olive oil cake? No. 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 It's really delicious because it's not super sweet, and then you can put something sweet with it, like an ice cream or, like, a caramel or something, and you get this, like, mm. super delicious, like, meld it's like a lemon savory. glaze kind of thing. Oh, yeah, totally. I could be down with that. Yeah. Um, there was an episode of Beat Bobby Flay, and the thing that they made was olive oil cake. And she beat Bobby Flay, which never <gasps> happens. That guy always wins. <laughs> <laughs> um, shockingly, not my random identifier. <laughs> but I am going to share. <laughs> I'm going to share a less popular opinion, because I know a lot of people also want Bobby Flay to lose. But... Um, <laughs> What I want to talk about is I sort of am having a really hard time right now dealing with all of the sort of at-home concert things that are happening, um, mostly because the whole, like, recording yourself, singing a song, like, sort of topical because we also just talked about YouTube, but, like, there are so many YouTube videos that are so bad of people singing, and I just, like, can't get past those. So then Mm -hmm. to, like, have to watch hours and hours of, like, what is obviously something that is for a good cause, um, but of people awkwardly singing into a camera, like, in their bedroom is just, like, my worst nightmare come true. And I feel physically uncomfortable trying to watch it. Um, Like, I tried to watch the Disney one, and, like, within minutes, I was like, I can't do it. I just, I can't do it. Somebody was singing from what was obviously their bedroom, and they (laughs) sounded fine. 
but I was just like, I feel like I'm watching YouTube, but like on prime time. Yeah, it just feels a little maybe too intimate. But also like, yeah, yes. I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) I have a question about it. Okay. Okay. Um, Okay. What if it is more than one person? Like a lot of younger bands, I guess, live in the same domicile. So like if a full band lives together, they're quarantined together and they go live together. Does that change things? Because it's less strange that it's just one person from their bedroom. It might. Or is it just no matter what? It might change weird. things. It does also change things for me when somebody is also like playing an instrument like in real time, mm-hmm. like while they're singing. One of the things that makes me uncomfortable is like when if it's like just them singing to like a track that's like playing from somewhere oh. in the home. But then like or also like if they're on one part of the screen and then like the person that's accompanying them is on the <laughs> other part of the screen. Like that that makes me uncomfortable. It's like I, I don't feel know why. like finally you know how I feel. Yeah, I also feel like I suddenly <laughs> know what it's like to be Caitlin when people start singing. <laughs> Everything you're describing, I'm like, yes, yes, yes. yes. <laughs> it's really funny too though, because like A, I'm a person who really likes live music. B, I was in theater for like a million years. So like people awkwardly singing things is like, you know, that's that was like a big part of my life for a long time. But like for some reason just it becoming like the new normal is is there like a real challenge for me yeah no i i i empathize yeah <laughs> but like that said please go donate to the orgs that they're trying to support because i think that that's really important and wonderful and if you're able to obviously if you're not make sure you're taking care of yourself as well but um you know again like i appreciate that these are things that are for good causes it's just like i can't watch it i can't do yeah. it i've tried that's, that's okay you're taking care of yourself by knowing that that's a boundary. <laughs> yeah. And then I try to watch the videos on YouTube later and I'm like, oh God, it's even worse on YouTube. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> that's all for Random Identifier. <laughs> um, everyone, that's it for Tech Swamp. If you heard anything on here that piqued your interest, head over to our website and make your way to the podcast section. We'll have notes on today's episode that include links to all the good stuff. And of course, we want to give a shout out to Brad Goodall, who has composed our podcast, Awesome Music. Thanks, Brad. Thanks, Brad. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Stitcher. And of course, we would love a rate review. Five stars only, please. (laughs) And that's all for today, folks. Everyone say bye. Goodbye. Bye.